0: Lord, we know that we can only stand in faith, only stand and bear the name of being a Christian, Lord, by your grace, by your strength. Lord, we know that we don't have it within ourselves. Only you dwelling within us gives us the strength. Lord, and we give you thanks that you will never leave us. Lord, that you're with us now, you're with us always. And Lord, you're making all things new in creation. You're making all things new in our lives. And Lord, we look forward to that day when we shall see you face to face. And in that moment, we shall be like you. Because Lord, your redemption is full. Lord, your ability to save is complete. And we thank you, Lord, that we will be saved to the uttermost. We will be saved for all eternity to live with you from everlasting to everlasting through your life, through your birth, through your death, through your resurrection, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Lord God, come, Jesus, come, 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 So there was a bishop who went to one of his churches in the diocese, and at uh, the service, it was Mothering Sunday, and he went to... Uh, be there to take the service in part, and the minister of the local church was preaching, and the minister stood up to preach, and he said, uh, I spent the best years of my life in the arms of another man's wife. My father's wife. And the bishop thought to himself, that's a really good illustration. I'm preaching tonight. I will go and I'll use that same illustration at another church tonight. So the next church, the bishop in the evening stands up to give the illustration and he says, I spent the best years of my life in the arms of another man's wife. And he had a complete blank. And then he said, I just can't remember who. The reason why we have the church calendar in the year, the reason why we have this, it's really a teaching aid, and we've had it for pretty much the last 17 or 1800 years, is that it gives us an opportunity in the year to remember all the good things about God and all the good things He's done for us, His generosity and His grace. And so the idea of a, a church calendar is that basically throughout the year at Christmas, at Easter, Good Friday, Advent, Epiphany, the whole church year, the whole idea is that we punctuate the year with opportunities to remember the ascension of Christ, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It makes sure that we don't miss anything in the whole year. The year starts at Advent every year. So Advent Sunday, which was last Sunday, the first of December, it's normally around the end of November, start of December. That's the start of the church calendar every year. There's the four period around the four Sundays of Advent leading up to Christmas Day. And it's all about awaiting arrival. Advent is all about remembering those who were awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And it's also about us awaiting arrival, us awaiting the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so Advent has this this dual theme, but both are to do with awaiting arrival. And then, of course, comes Christmas Day, 25th of December, Need to tool to, to that, and then twelve days following that is Christmas, and uh, quite a short season. And then there's the weeks of Epiphany after that. And so Advent is all about He's coming. Christmas is all about He's here, and Epiphany is all about and He's for everybody. And uh, the thing about Advent quite often the symbol of Advent is light. And so one of the reasons why we festoon everything with light and we light candles is because Advent is quite often symbolized by light. And uh, last week Stephen talked to us about the fact that The light of Christ cannot be put out. It cannot be extinguished. It's a prevailing light. And there's great comfort in that. There's great comfort, as Stephen was saying, in the fact that we know that in the darkness of our lives, in the darkness of the world, whether it's sickness or disappointment or broken relationships or death or whatever it happens to be, we know that the light of Christ gives hope to us because the light of Christ can never be extinguished. But the light of Christ is not just inextinguishable. It's not just the light that gives comfort and prevails. It is the light that is utterly penetrating. So just in case we have this picture of the light of Christ as some sort of little flickering candle which a a good burst of air might actually put out, the light of Christ is a bright penetrating light that is actually shining continually further in the darkness. Not only can it not be extinguished, but its advancement cannot be stopped because darkness ultimately is nothing. Light illuminates the nothingness of the darkness. The light of Christ is prevailing. It is penetrating. Ultimately, the Bible tells us everything will be laid bare. Everything will be exposed, including our own hearts and our own lives. There are many calls today in society for utter transparency. Whenever the financial institutions got us into lots of problems a number of years back, or whether it's the political or legal systems, There are so often calls for utter transparency, but how many people really want transparency? How many people actually want our hearts to be laid bare? Because that's what the light of Christ does. The light of Christ ultimately will expose absolutely everything, including all of our hearts and all of our lives and every life and every heart. There's a wonderful passage in John chapter 3 where there's a conversation between Nicodemus, the Jewish religious leader, and Jesus. And interestingly, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he doesn't want anyone to see him coming to question Jesus. He doesn't want the bad press, reputation, criticism, whatever it happens to be that will come. So he goes at night under cover of darkness. And after that conversation in which Jesus says, Nicodemus, if you want to understand who God is and what God is doing, if you want to be part of it, you need to be born from above. There needs to be a supernatural birth in your life. And after this conversation, John, the gospel writer, comments by saying this, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. The East African revival that really started around the 1920s and went on for uh, a number of decades, and its effects can still be seen. The sort of the theme song of that massive move of the Holy Spirit in Eastern Africa was to walk in the light. We sometimes sing that song. Walk in the light, walk in the light, walk in the light, walk in the light of the Lord. You can almost see the, the, the people of Africa walking together. And it wasn't just some nice children's song. We often sing as a children's song. It was actually the fact that as people in their place of work or out in the fields or whatever it happens to be, again and again came face to face with God and, and just knelt down and wept in the middle of the field or whatever it happens to be and there was just this irresistible move of God throughout large swathes of Africa and, and the sense was that because there was this taste of the fact that God is good People wanted to step into that place of God's presence more and more. And so they were encouraging each other, walk in the light, step out in the light, because the light is the thing that liberates you. The light is God's love and God's presence. And so that reading we had today in Titus chapter two, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, whenever we encounter God's grace, the outcome from that is holiness in our lives. That's how you can tell if someone has genuinely come face to face with the grace of God, because their lives change. That's why James says, we know that faith is real if deeds happen as a result of faith. Why? Because if you encounter God in Jesus Christ, you will be transformed. You will increasingly walk in the light of the Lord because you will, you will experience the love of Jesus Christ. And what that means is that if we're willing, if we allow ourselves to be loved by Jesus Christ, then that means that we are unable to love other people. And so actually, even though the whole process of stepping into the light and having, our, having that vulnerability and exposing ourselves to the light of Christ's presence, even though that is a difficult process because it means listening to the Holy Spirit who specifically shows us the areas of our life which are rotten. And we know the fact that he's telling us that because he loves us. He's shining his light on a particular aspect of our lives. And we know we can trust him. We know that he has begun this work of redemption in our lives. And we know we can trust him. And we know that he'll continue the work to its completion. And so we tentatively, prayerfully say, Lord, I'm, I'm going to talk to you about this because I trust you. And the Bible even tells us, even confess your sins to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Tell them what it is that you've struggled with or are struggling with. Why? Because that helps to break the power of sin. That helps to overcome the temptations that we may find habitually difficult to overcome. And so we walk in the light. We encourage each other to walk in the light because we will enter into a greater freedom. We will experience more and more the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the presence of Jesus, the love of God coursing through our veins. And all of this will continue until we stand before Jesus Christ. And so as that Anglican Bishop said about 150 or so years ago when asked, was he saved? And he said, I am saved. I have been saved. I am being saved and I will be saved. In other words, that I have met God through Jesus Christ by his grace and I've received his forgiveness. I'm being made new. I have been saved. But also I'm being saved. Because I'm continually being told by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit, where there is rottenness in my life. And I'm continually trusting God's love. And I'm stepping out. I'm confessing my sins. I'm turning away from it. I'm asking for help from the Lord. I'm asking my brothers and sisters for prayer and for help. And I'm continually stepping out of the darkness into the light. I am being saved. And I will also be saved because one day I will stand before the judge, Jesus Christ. And he will be in his body, his risen body, with his healed marks of crucifixion in his hands and his feet and his side. And every single one of us will also be standing in a physical body. That's what the Bible tells us. And so in the Nicene Creed that we declare once a month in the 10 o'clock service, we declare that Jesus Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Every single human being will stand in a physical body before a physical Jesus Christ. That's the general resurrection of the dead that the Jewish people were waiting for for hundreds and thousands of years. What they never expected, what no one did expect, was that one man would be resurrected in the middle of history. And he would be the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. But the general resurrection of all people will happen to every single person. And then the judgment will come. And that day, for some, will be a wonderful day. And that day, for some, will be a terrible day. And the early Christians prayed the prayer, Maranatha, which means, come, Lord Jesus, come. And they weren't just asking for more of the Holy Spirit. They were saying, Jesus, come again in glory. Come and bring everything to completion. Why? Why did they pray that? Because they wanted to see justice done everywhere. They wanted the light of Christ's presence to illuminate everything, all the corrupt governmental systems, all the war, all the famine, all the disease, all the death, all the darkness in the world, all the darkness that remained in their own lives that they were struggling with. They were saying, Lord, come back and bring everything to completion. And so that same creed contains that line that we as Christians look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Why? Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The judgment has no fear for us. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Because we know the judge. And in fact, John tells us judgment has already happened. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Judgment happens in this life. We are living in the here and now. now. We decide what happens. We decide when Jesus separates. We decide in this life ourselves which side we go to and we decide by how we respond to Jesus Christ. It gives us no pleasure whatsoever to know that for for many people, that day will be a terrible day. And there'll be those who are loved ones and family members and friends who'll be standing on the other side of the divide. And that's what spurs us on to mission and compassion. Because we want no one to perish But the faith we declare again and again, the scriptures that we read leave us in no doubt that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. And in and through him, all creation was brought into being. And that ultimately, all authority, including that of judgment, has been delegated to Jesus Christ. And after that has happened, and after those who are brought into the kingdom of God that will never end. The Bible tells us that Christ will turn round and he will return the kingdom to his Father. Advent reminds us that not only have we been saved and are being saved, but we will be saved. And that if we meet Jesus Christ, if we have met him, then holiness will flow in our lives. What else would the Holy Spirit do but make us holy? I think there are some real challenges for us in this Advent season. The idea of Advent and Lent are both times of preparation before the big festivals of Christmas and Easter. And they're both times to be times of reflection. I think one of the reasons why we now celebrate quite often Christmas festivities before Advent even starts is not just because of commercialism. It's actually because the penetrating light of Jesus Christ, the brightness and searching light of Jesus Christ is uncomfortable. And so the light of Christ is not just comforting, it's also discomforting. John the Baptist is a a figure, is a character whose ministry we we annually consider at this time of Advent. Uh, John, whose whole ministry was really caught up with this whole theme of light. And so John chapter 1, we hear about him being a witness to the light, coming so that people would believe in the one coming after him. And so the reason why we celebrate Christmas Day On the 25th of December, that was seen as the time whenever the day was shortest. And actually from then on, the light would increase. That's why we we celebrate Christmas at the darkest time of the year. We don't know when Jesus Christ was born. But we celebrate the birth of Christ at the time whenever the world is at its darkness. And the light will only increase. John the Baptist, his day, well, it's in the summer. Why? Because the light is about to turn and it's about to head towards darkness. That's when we remember the ministry of John the Baptist. You see, much of what we know about John the Baptist's life is to do with him living in the midst not just of spiritual darkness, but actually living his life in physical darkness as he witnessed the life the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And so it's no accident that the first time that we hear about John the Baptist is when he is in the darkness of his mother's womb. And as Elizabeth comes to to greet Mary, her cousin, and Mary comes through the door, and Elizabeth is pregnant with child, and as Mary comes through the door and greets her, the child within Elizabeth leaps for joy. And Elizabeth says to Mary, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear, Mary. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Not only was John the Baptist alive and fully alive in the womb, John the Baptist was also responding to the Holy Spirit. He was a child yet unborn, and yet the call of God was already on his life. He could already respond to the Holy Spirit, and that is true of every single human being. The Bible tells us that God calls us even when we're in the womb. Every child conceived, whether they're a second old, or a minute old, or a week old, already can respond to the Holy Spirit of God, already has life, already God's call. Even before they were born, there was a call of God on their lives. So whether a child comes to be born or not, that child still, in God's eyes, has a name, and God's eyes has a call. There are all sorts of reasons why a child may not be born. There are many medical reasons as well as human choice as to why many children are not born. But what we pray for, what we hope for, what the medical profession works for is that every child conceived will be born strong and healthy and well and fulfill the call of God that is on their lives. And so I think here in Northern Ireland, particularly after the legal changes on the 21st of October this year, John the Baptist's life has much to say to us about the sacredness of life. I think it also has much to say to us about the sacredness of marriage. Because John's life that we hear started in darkness and it also ended in darkness because John's life finished in the darkness of prison, where he was beheaded for standing up for marriage. John, we're told, had challenged a dangerous thing to do, challenged again and again King Herod, because Herod was having a relationship with his brother Philip's wife Herodias. And again and again, John said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. And because John the Baptist stood up to King Herod, he was unlawfully imprisoned, and ultimately he was beheaded. I think John the Baptist would have much to say to us today in Northern Ireland about the sacredness of life and the sacredness of married life. The danger for us of talking about what ultimately is all to do with sex and relationships and life. Because ultimately that's what those law changes are to do with in terms of uh, what's happened in Northern Ireland in recent months. The danger of talking about these things is that we, we may think that they're only the problems of other people. But actually I would say that In terms of human brokenness today, particularly in the Western world, I think that our sexuality is probably the most broken part of our humanity. And I think that includes every single one of us. I think that as a society, we have strayed so far away from the will of God that I think we, we don't even know what's right and left. We don't know what's up and down anymore. And Jesus, in his life and in his ministry, he, he made sure that we understood God's expectations and God's design. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he addressed this and said, you've heard that it's been said, uh, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at someone of the opposite sex lustfully, then you have committed adultery. It's exactly the same as doing it. And I think for, I imagine for every single human being, when we're, we're faced with the person of Christ and the teaching of Christ and the awareness of lust and pornography and adultery and all sorts of sexual activity outside that between one man and one woman in lifelong marriage, then we realize how far we've moved away from the will of God. There's that wonderful moment in the ministry and life of Jesus, a very challenging moment where the religious authorities drag before Jesus a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, so we can only imagine the fact that what's been happening is we're told that the reason why this happens is because they wanted to trap Jesus. And so we could imagine the religious leaders ask around, does anybody know, have an idea to trap Jesus? Does anybody know of someone who's committing adultery these days? You can imagine the grubby conversations the religious leaders are having. Does anybody know? Could you ask around? Is there someone who we know about who's having some sort of adulterous relationships? Does anybody know? Great. Well, arrange a time and a place and drag that woman and we'll all gather in front of the teacher, Jesus. And so they set the trap for Jesus because he has this choice Does he say according to Jewish law, yes, obey Jewish law and stone her? But by doing so, he would break Roman law because only the Roman law allowed execution to happen. And so the trap was set. Would Jesus abide by the Jewish law or would he abide by the Roman law? And so they pestered him and asked, Lord, what should we do? Teacher, what should we do? The penalty for this is stoning to death. What should we do? And Jesus stoops down and writes in the ground with his finger in the dust. And eventually he stands up and he says, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground. At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are you? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. I think there are a number of really important things for us in that Moment in that little scene in which Jesus brings the conversation, brings the grace of God, and shows a whole new level of in- interaction between human beings. I think the first thing is that none of us can throw stones. There was only one person left who could have thrown the stone, and it was Jesus. And he said, no, neither do I condemn you. I think it's really important for us to see the challenge of Jesus in this, in that that we should never, particularly as a church, we should never use the sexual sins of others to our own advantage. So we have to be very careful whenever it comes to saying, This is what we believe is true. This is what the Bible says, that sexual activity should only happen in a context of a marriage between a man and a woman who are committed to a lifelong union. And to say that with courage and to say it with humility, why? Because we believe that the way of God is the way for human beings to flourish. We believe that that's where life is to be found. But we also say it with humility because we know that there are all sorts of sexual brokenness. And as a society, we, we watch ads, we watch programs, we read magazines, we read books, we do internet pornography. We do all sorts of things that contravene the good design and will of God. Next month on the 12th of January, Judith Cairns, the director of Love for Life, a Christian charity which often goes into schools and churches to teach young people about good sexual health and relationships will be coming here to speak to us. And looking at some of the information on the website, it's really startling to see how much as a society we have become virtually submerged by sex. Not only is it just because we have adverts that use sex to sell dog food and ice cream and cars, but also the fact of what it's doing to our young people by how we have sexualized and over-sexualized society. 29% 29% of 15-year-old boys in the United Kingdom access pornography every single day. Nearly a third of 15-year-old boys every day. If you look at boys who do it on an occasional basis, the, the percentage is far, far higher. And do we imagine that men and women who are as as young girls and boys as teenagers who are engaging in this, do we imagine they will suddenly stop it at the age of eighteen? Do we imagine they'll suddenly stop it at the age of twenty one? No. Do we think that the objectivization of women and men in in programs like Love Island, do we think that that will not lead to abuse? Do we think that it will not lead to people being treated as objects rather than people? Do we think that it will not lead to higher violence against females? And what about our own viewing habits? How many of the films that we watch have sex scenes and nudity that 30 years ago people would have blushed at, and today we just take it on as our diet day after day, film after film, book after book, magazine after magazine, and then we wonder why our children do exactly the same thing, not just secondary school but primary school children as well. Do we wonder why we're so confused about sexuality and relationships? None of us are in a position to throw stones. But neither should we forget the teaching and the person of Jesus Christ. Nor should we forget that with God there is mercy. That Jesus said to the woman, neither do I condemn you. And he says to us as we come to him in the midst of our brokenness, does he say, he says to us, neither do I condemn you. With God there is mercy, there is healing, there is wholeness. That if we're caught up in any of these things, if we're caught up in any sort of, any of the things I've mentioned, and we find it hard to get ourselves out of that mindset, or that imagining, or that fantasizing, or whatever it happens to be, With God there is not only forgiveness, there is also the strength to have the light of Christ shone on our lives and with God's strength to move out of that into a new place of freedom. To allow ourselves to be loved by Jesus Christ so that we can look at other people and love them in the same way God loves them. And to realize the beauty of the single life and the beauty of the married life. So often today, part of our obsession with with sex drives people to think that unless I I engage in sexual activity, unless I become married or have a long-term relationship, I am less of a person. We need to recapture the glory of of the choice of Jesus Christ to be a celibate person, to be single, and to realize the high calling that that means. And for us as a Christian community to realize that we as a Christian community need to support people who who respond to that calling, who choose that calling, and who walk in that calling, because as St. Augustine says, it takes a community to support those who are celibate. And it's far better to do that than to enter into a bad marriage. And for us as Christians, as followers of Christ, the Bible is clear that we are to marry Christians. We're only to marry fellow believers. Paul says, what fellowship, what marriage can light have with darkness? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? If we're in a marriage with someone who isn't a believer, then we stay with them, we love them, we witness to them. Similarly, if we're in a marriage with a believer, but we do not enter into a marriage with someone who does not have a Christian faith. Because once we come to faith in Christ, that relationship trumps every other relationship. And the central purpose of marriage for a Christian is to be partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is to be a common witness together to the person of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of marriage for a Christian. It can only be done if both are believers. I know that many of the things that I'm saying this morning are challenging to all of us. But the gift of God, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of redemption, the gift of healing, meets us no matter who we are and where we are. And so as a church, We say to everybody who comes across the door of our worship services or events or whatever it happens to be, come as you are. No matter what your background, no matter how far you've strayed away, No matter how even now you're in the midst of brokenness in terms of your sexuality or your sexual thinking or your behavior, whatever it happens to be, we say as a Christian community, come as you are. But we also remember the final words that Jesus said to this woman. Go now and leave your life of sin. And so as a Christian community, we say, come as you are but don't remain the same. And Jesus says that to every single one of us. Come as you are, but don't remain the same. And so, in humility and love, as we encounter people who maybe have very different views or very different behaviors or very different day-to-day practices than ourselves, in humility, we extend the hand of Christ to them, and we tell them how much Christ loves them, and we acknowledge the fact that they too are broken, just as we too were broken and are being whole, are being made new. John, in his first letter, says this. This is the message we have heard from him, that's Jesus, and declare to you. God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, purifies us from all sins. all of us can trust Jesus Christ to save us completely. That when we come to Christ, we experience His healing and His love. As we walk with Christ, we experience His ongoing healing and love, and we know that work will come to completion only in the moment when we stand before Him. And we will be made like Him. Because we shall see him as he is. Blessed are the pure in heart, said Jesus, for they will see God. Because the wonder of living a life of purity by the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit is that not only does God see us, but we see God. Shall we stand together? There are many things that we've touched on today that may bring challenge, may bring pain. It could be the day that um, you've lost a child. It could be the day you've tried to have children and that hasn't happened. It could be that you've had an abortion. It could be that you've been sexually abused. It could be that a relationship has caused you harm, that your marriage is in difficulty. There could be all sorts of things that for you, or for a family member, or a friend, that are really points of pain. I just wanna encourage you, in the midst of worship, in the prayer ministry, do you need to say anything, just ask for prayer. Just ask for healing, ask for wholeness, ask for forgiveness, ask for the light of Christ to shine in your life, and my life, and our lives together. And together we may discover the beauty of God's design for our lives, for our bodies, for our relationships, for the church. And to God be the glory.